So 1 Peter chapter 1 from verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkled by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. and his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer griefs in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of great worth, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proven, may be proved genuine, and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with the inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even the angels long to look into these things. That is the reading of God's word. We've just been reading there, just had read to us a portion about those who preach the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And as we come now to hear the ministry of the word of God, Father, we pray to praise you for your word, to praise you for your son, to praise you for your Holy Spirit who helps in the work of preaching. So grant that preacher and people alike this morning would be very conscious of you in our midst as you do us good, as you turn our eyes upon Jesus. Grant it for the glory of his name we ask it. Amen. Please take your seats. Well, as we open our Bibles again this morning at 1 Peter, it's great to be back into this section. And the way we're going to get to verses 10 to 12 is by having a quick look again at verse 8. I kind of summarily dismissed verse 8 and 9 last Sunday. And here's the way we're going to get into it. I'd like you to imagine for a moment that you'd only ever read the first phrase in verse 8, the first phrase of verse 8, that says, though you have not seen him, dot, 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 what's Peter going to say next? Though you have not seen him, speaking of the Lord Jesus, who's about to be revealed when he comes in glory, though you have not seen him, what's Peter going to say? He could say, well, you haven't seen him, but I have, and I'm going to tell you all about him. That would be one answer. Though you have not seen him, 
Peter might say, try to imagine what he's like. That's not what he says. Though you have not seen him, nonetheless he sees you. That's true, but that's not what he says. Though you have not seen him, you are willing to exercise blind faith. No, that is not what he says. That is not the Christian life. And I do that because one of the great things we learn as we read our Bibles from day to day is to, is to look for the surprises in the text. And there is a surprise in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's a surprise because we already know the context into which Peter is writing. His readers, like us, did not begin their faith in the Lord Jesus with a physical encounter of the Lord Jesus. They didn't physically see him. And like us, they never got physically to see the Lord Jesus in this life. And yet, as Peter writes to these believers, scattered and scorned as they were, and perhaps even scunnered, to use that old Scottish word, scunnered at times maybe, what do we discover in verse 8? We discover that they were not scraping by with a kind of low-grade, uncertain, ungrounded faith. They'd never seen Jesus. They were exiles. They knew that God had chosen them, but it was all going so badly wrong. It was just a miserable experience. No, that's not what we discover. They know the Lord Jesus. They trust the Lord Jesus, and they love him. Now, this, friends, we should have our eyes open to, because this is the power of the gospel. This is evidence of the fact that they had really been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead, of which we read a few moments ago when Jonathan read to us. And this that we're reading about here is the global experience of every Christian believer around the world and throughout history. Every true believer faces trials of many kinds. Every true believer by the power of the Holy Spirit within them, becomes convinced that the Lord uses trials to strengthen us because He puts such a value on our faith. Every true believer is promised, verse 7, that the proving of our faith will result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus comes again. And, and just to say on that, that's praise instead of scorn. That's glory instead of shame. That's Honor instead of dishonor. All the things that the believers would have been experiencing as exiles in what we now call Turkey was going to be radically transformed, verse 7. So every believer finds not a resentment arising in their hearts because of the tough time they're having, but remarkably, verse 8, every true believer finds an ever-deepening Love for the Lord Jesus, trust in the Lord Jesus, joy in Him, because we really are, verse 9, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. One of the things the enemy loves to do is make us doubt our salvation. Am I really saved? Do I really belong to Him? Has He really done that work in my life? And when we go through a passage like we've been going through for the last number of Sundays, we begin to see how God can build that total confidence, not in ourselves, but in what the Lord has done, and can give us that tremendous love for the Savior, 
ongoing faith in him and a rejoicing because we realize that it's actually happening. We are obtaining the salvation of our souls. We are on course for glory. Now, as Peter continues his letter to his suffering Christian friends, he is out to protect these beautiful things we see in verse 8 and 9. He's out to protect this love they have for the Lord, this ongoing believing in Him, this ongoing faith in Him, and he's out to protect this joy that they find in Him. Peter knows how easy it is for believers to lose their sense of awe and wonder at what the Lord has done for us, especially in the griefs of many trials. He knew that, perhaps from his own experience. He certainly knew it from being around the Lord Jesus. There was a day in the midst of his ministry when the Lord Jesus told a group of people who were listening to him about the the dangers of no longer seeing the wonder of our salvation and of growing cold in our love for the Lord. And and that's exactly what the Lord Jesus saw happening around him. I'm, I'm thinking about what he said in Matthew chapter 13. You can turn to it for a moment if you would like. I'm going to read it, but you by all means turn if you want to see it. I'm just going to break in at verse 14. This is speaking about uh, old covenant Israel who were walking away from the Messiah. And he says there in verse 14 of Matthew 13, Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Verse 15, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts, and I would turn and heal them. That was an awful thing that was happening spiritually. As people's hearts grew cold and hard towards the Lord Jesus. No matter how plain he made things, no matter how well he spoke through parables, no matter how he broke it down for them to make the point unmistakably clear, no matter what they heard, they couldn't understand. No matter what they saw, they couldn't perceive because their hearts were growing hard. And every time I read that, I I long to, to always understand what the Lord is doing the magnitude of what he's doing with my heart. I long to understand it. Otherwise, my heart will grow. My ears will barely hear. My eyes will barely see what killed me. And that's what happens in the Christian life. We just get a bit bored. We just get a bit disenchanted or disengaged with the Lord. Something else comes in to take our attention away from him. We get bored with the Lord, bored with His Word, bored with His church, bored with all that He is doing and has done. And I think Peter has these words of the Lord Jesus from Matthew 13 in his mind as he wrote 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12, because he didn't want his readers to grow spiritually dull of heart. This love they had for Jesus in spite of not seeing Him, this ongoing belief in spite of not seeing Him, And this joy they had, this remarkable joy, he wanted to stoke the fire of that. And so he does so by telling us about the work done for us by the Holy Spirit, by the prophets, by the preachers, and by the angels. In just a few weeks from now, it's going to be hard to go into any supermarket without hearing the Christmas songs being played. And I always love that time of year, and we look forward to it. 
And one of them you'll hear is walking in a winter wonderland. And we really get the opportunity to do that in our part of the world. But I want you this morning to walk in a gospel wonderland. That's what verses 10 to 12 are about. And it's not a fantasy. Peter wants us to have this sense of love for the Lord Jesus. Confident belief and faith in him. Rejoicing in what he's done. He wants to have that growing all the time in our hearts. So that our hearts don't grow cold. And what he describes to us here is a gospel wonderland. But it's not fantasy. It's absolutely real. So as I thought about how to structure this, I thought about you maybe later on today doing your seed time. I hope you're still doing that. Set up on a Saturday, praying that God would speak to us in his word, reading the passage. Sunday seed time just getting yourself five minutes to say, Lord, what did I hear from you today? I want to build on the rock. I don't want to just hear, I want to do. I hope you're still doing that. And I was picturing you maybe later on this evening doing your seed time, thinking about what we'd been looking at this morning. And you'll have stuff to think about as Jonathan brings the word at the baptismal service tonight. But I thought of four questions that you might ask later. What did he say about the Spirit? What does he say about the prophets? What does he say about the preachers and what does he say about the angels? So they are the four things we're going to look at this morning. And very helpfully, I've left the prompter through the back, which is not very handy because I can't reach it from here. But uh, Laura, if you can advance that for me, that would be great. Number one, what does he say about the Spirit? And, and, and here are the verses. The verses should appear there on the screen. Concerning this salvation, we're going to get to the prophets, but the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours... Searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, what is going on here? This, is, this seems very dense and very complex. One line at a time. Peter is explaining about the work of the Holy Spirit, here called the Spirit of Christ, whom he is, the Spirit of Christ in the life and ministry of Old Testament prophets who, who served the Lord at least 700 years before the Lord Jesus came in flesh and blood. And it's plain that the Old Testament prophets spoke under the influence and the authority of the Spirit of Christ. That's what we're seeing there in verse 11. They were not making this stuff up. In his next book, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, Peter writes this, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Now, your friends just say to you, oh, that's just your interpretation. No, it's not just my interpretation. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's part of what Peter's telling us happened here. And what was the message that the Spirit gave them to speak? Well, it was first about the grace that was to be yours, says Peter to his readers, then and now. And it was grace founded on these two things in verse 11, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now we're going to come to think about that order in a minute, suffering first, glory later. But for now, just think what we're being told here. Hundreds of years before God the Son was born, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, his spirit, the spirit of Christ, was speaking through the prophets about the sufferings 
and the subsequent glories of Christ when he came. If you're looking at the journals in the NIV, you'll see there in verse 11 that the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing at when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah. But actually, Christ the Messiah is the same word. It's exactly the same word in the Greek. NIV slightly translates it differently to, to refresh us, but actually it's helpful to see it as the same word. The Spirit of Christ predicted the sufferings of Christ. Now, when we get to 1 Peter chapter 3, a very well-known verse is verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. I'm looking forward to when we get to that. And Peter's point there is that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross need never be repeated. Christ suffered once for sins. It was all sufficient. But there's just the slight hazard that we would take suffered once for sin and assume that the suffering of the Lord Jesus was mercifully quick. And he didn't have long to think about it or long to endure it. That's not the case about crucifixion. Crucifixion is not a mercifully quick form of execution it is tortuously long by design believer from eternity past before the world began you were known and loved and the plan was in place that to bring you back to God against whom in time you and I and everyone else in the human race would rebel the plan was in place that that would happen in staggering love as his son would suffer for you. We sang at the beginning of the meeting this morning, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. But that was not a plan hatched mid-history. There was not a conversation in heaven between God the Father and God the Son as God the Father saw how things were going and he said, it's reached such a stage, we're going to have to do something really desperate. I'm going to send you now. For 700 years, at least, before his coming. The latest of the prophets, the ones closest to the event of his birth and life and death, knew that the Spirit of Christ in them, had been predicting the sufferings of the Christ. That was the message of the Old Testament prophets. And what is Peter doing with this information? He's stoking the fire of that verse 8 love that we have for the Lord Jesus. And the best way he can find to do that is to remind us that, that we love him because he first loved us. And what he says about the Spirit shows us that he has loved us for a very long time. That's what he said about the Spirit. Secondly, what did he say about the prophets? Well, again, back to verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he spoke about the sufferings of the Christ and the glories that would follow. What is Peter doing here? He's, 
he's working, he's writing to help his readers realize how much more we can see today than the Old Testament prophets could see when they wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who was at work within them about what the Christ would suffer and go through. The Spirit of Christ talking about the sufferings of Christ. Peter Peter wants us to walk in a gospel wonderland. He wants us to be amazed how long that was the plan, how long the Spirit of Christ knew the suffering was coming before he came into the world. And he wants us to know that the prophets did not see as much as we now see about that amazing plan of salvation. The Spirit of Christ in them was indicating that God's Christ, God's Messiah, God's anointed King would come and would be glorified one day, but first would come dreadful suffering for him. Now, what was that like? What kind of experience was that like for the the prophets? The last thing I would ever want to give the impression, uh, and I'm sure this is true of anyone who stands here to open God's Word and serve by preaching it, is that I get all this stuff. This This is all knowledge I have, and all I'm doing is imparting my knowledge to you. That is not the reality. Week by week, I'm through in my little room there having my socks blown off by what I'm seeing. If you see socks lying around in the back corridor, they're probably mine. They're probably a biohazard, so don't go too close to them. But I'm in there week by week, a few days ahead of you looking at this passage on a Sunday morning, seeing things I've never seen before, thinking about things that have never occurred to me before. And then I bring all that from my excitement in the text, and I try to unpack it in a way that you'll catch some of that. And the same is true only, of course, infinitely more significantly for the prophets. They weren't just regurgitating what they heard and thinking, oh yes, I can can see how this is going to be. Oh yes, yes, I understand this. What was that like for them, line upon line? Think about Isaiah, probably the the, the best known example of a, a prophet who spoke about the Lord Jesus for the sake of argument this morning. Seven centuries before Jesus was born, speaking about one who would come as the arm of the Lord who'd be despised and rejected, acquainted with grief, one from whom men hide their faces, one who would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, one who would be wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, one upon whom would be the punishment that brings us peace, one who would be striped, whose back would be opened, And by that dreadful wounding, we would be healed. The the, the Isaiah who said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one of us, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, this one who was to come, the iniquity of us all. This Isaiah who also saw, and this must have been even more mysterious, he saw that there was going to be a future It was the will of the Lord to crush him, Isaiah 53, verse 10, to put him to grief. But when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, 
will justify many. And he'll bear their iniquities. He'll pour out his soul to death. He'll be numbered with the transgressors. He'll bear the sin of many. He'll make transgression, sorry, make intercession for the sinners. Now, can you imagine? I've just quoted a summary of Isaiah 53. Very, very well-known Old Testament prophetic passage. Can you imagine Isaiah's experience speaking this prophecy by the power of the Spirit of Christ, but not just sitting there or standing there nodding with it as though I, you know, I get all this, this news that I'm passing on to Israel today. No, this was mind-blowing for him and for all the prophets. There's news of a person coming, one called the arm of God, one called the righteous one. He's going to be despised and rejected by his creatures, but he won't wipe them off the face of the earth. That's a mystery for Isaiah. He'll treat them with mercy, which is not as we deserve. He'll treat them with grace. There's grace coming, which is the opposite of what we deserve. He will take the terrible punishment for our treachery. Isaiah's thinking, who's going to do this? How's this going to happen? He will suffer horrifically. He's going to be deprived of justice, wounded, crushed, smitten by God. And yet, when that horrible thing happens to him at the hands of wicked men, it's going to be the will of God to punish him for our rebellion. He will bear our punishment to death so that we can have peace with God through him. And yet, somehow, this death will not be the end of him. His life will be prolonged. The will of God will prosper in his hands. He'll see the eternal impact of his suffering. He'll be satisfied in his soul. He'll know that it was well worth it. And he's going to intercede for those who have crossed the line with God a million times, the transgressors. There's a lot in that, isn't there? Think for a moment about Isaiah's experience or any of the Old Testament prophets of whom Peter is speaking here. The fact is that the the fact that the message they spoke did not originate with them is even clearer when they did not understand everything about the message that they were given to proclaim. They didn't know who the bringer of this grace would be. They didn't know when he would come. And understandably, that would have been very puzzling for Isaiah. So what did they do? He and all his prophet colleagues hundreds of years before him searched and inquired carefully to gain more understanding verse 11 inquiring what person or time the spirit of christ in them was indicating so here's the other side of prophecy that we need to understand though they spoke from god as they were carried along by the holy spirit the old testament prophets were not mere voices for hire they didn't just begin to speak words that never went through their mind They were not just mechanically passing on data. Far from bypassing the minds of the prophets, what the Spirit of Christ in them said through them had a profound personal effect upon them. That's what Peter's telling us. It it fascinated them. They longed to know and understand more of the implications of what the Spirit of Christ in them had given them to say. How's the Lord going to save us by grace? How's a God of perfect justice going to deal with transgressors who couldn't give a fig for him or their sin? What will he do? Who will he send? 
When will this happen? The prophets cared about that message. They made efforts to discover what was still mysterious to them, to see what was not yet fully revealed to them. And verse 12 says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. I wonder, do you see what Peter is doing? The question is, sister, brother, this morning, do we treasure the light that has been given to us in the Old and New Testaments? You see, we can sit down this afternoon if we want and read Isaiah 53, and it all seems pretty straightforward to us. Because we take for granted all the fulfillment by the Lord Jesus, which has been preached to us, verse 12, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and which backfills all the gaps that remained for the prophets as they spoke these words and tried to work them out. I can hardly believe that it's 17 years since the release of the film Happy Feet. You weren't expecting that this morning. A wee film about a, a, a penguin who couldn't sing but could tap dance. It, it wasn't a true story. Um, you'll not find it on Blue Planet or anything like that. But Happy Feet came to my strange mind this week when I was reminded that in Matthew 13, Jesus went on from the verses I read to you earlier on about hearts growing cold and ears growing dull and eyes not seeing. He went on to tell his followers that they had happy eyes and happy ears because blessed just means super abundantly happy. So let me tell you what Jesus said in the next verses of Matthew 13. He said, blessed are your eyes, happy are your eyes, for they see, and your ears are happy, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and longed to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Do you feel the happiness of your eyes and your ears and your heart that has heard the full glories of the gospel proclaimed to you all your life, perhaps? Do you feel the happiness that Jesus speaks about here? You may or may not have happy feet, but you've got happy eyes and happy ears and a happy heart if you can see how awesomely privileged we are that the prophets who did not understand these things were told they're serving you in the things that have now been announced. To you, through those who preach the good news, to you. What was mysterious to the prophets is now clear to us. But it's also true to say that what is mysterious to us was clear to them. Peter's writing to believers who, just like the Old Testament prophets, can't fully see the what's and why's and how's and when's of this life 
as elect exiles. And we've spent at least one Sunday, a couple of Sundays, setting up this series, thinking ourselves into the context of these original recipients so that we really feel its power coming to us. And there must have been aspects of the various trials that grieve Peter's readers all through history that we can't see the need for, that we can't see the point in. Do you remember the song I quoted on week one? Minor tears in times of sorrows, darkness not yet understood. Through the valley I must travel where I see no earthly good. And Peter is also encouraging his suffering readers. And I'm encouraging you this morning, brother and sister, suffering, by showing us that what we have come to see and know and live by is no small thing. This glorious gospel that we now understand was predicted by the Spirit of Christ concerning the sufferings of Christ. And Peter is urging us not to take for granted the fact that we live in the full noontime glare of gospel light in a way that the prophets didn't. We have the privilege of knowing all that even the prophets long to know more of. And we need to get clear what they could see. Namely, in verse 11, the spirit of Christ in them predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It's the order of these things that that will help us with all the things we don't understand. We understand the full revelation of the gospel. We don't yet understand everything that God is doing in our lives. The order is suffering, then glory. You know, there was a day recorded in Mark chapter 8 when Peter, this Peter, our Peter, took Jesus on one side and argued with the Lord Jesus about what he had said concerning his suffering. Jesus spoke about the fact that he was going to be rejected, he was going to suffer, he was going to die and rise. And Peter's view was that this suffering, this rejection, this death and resurrection of which Jesus spoke so plainly was not the way for the Messiah to go about his business. Imagine arguing with the Lord Jesus that his suffering wasn't necessary. Peter did that. And we instinctively feel that way about suffering. It's mysterious to us. We still wonder, is it really necessary in our lives? And yet the pattern established for the Lord is established for his people. Brothers and sisters, suffering now, glory later. So, as we think of these prophets, what was mysterious to them is clear to us in terms of the gospel, but what is mysterious to us was clear to them. Suffering first, then glory. Now, what was it about the preachers? I'm going to move on. I'm not going to do this point. We're going to come to it another time. I'm going to get a chance at the end of chapter 1 to talk again about the word, this good news that was preached to you, and I'll pick up on the preachers there. Let's go to the last thing, because our time is nearly gone. What did he say about the angels? You should be encouraged, by the way, when I do that, that I'm thinking, I'm watching the clock. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you 
through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which, Peter adds, things into which angels long to look. What was that about the angels? Seed time tonight, sitting thinking, what? How has God spoken to me today? What have, what have I to take from this? Well, Peter has been at work in this section to show us how blessed we are historically. We now see what the prophets dimly saw or didn't see. And now he shows us at the end of verse 12 how blessed we are, how blessed his readers were, and us this morning, how blessed we are experientially. And that's why the angels get a message, And when we talk about angels, we have to get the hallmark card images out of our minds. Angels are not cute, chubby, cheerful little creatures. When we see them in the Bible, they're, they're servants of God, and most often they come in staggering power. And uh, if one appeared here this morning, you wouldn't be wanting a selfie, you'd be wanting an exit. And yet, Christian believer... In spite of the reality of these fascinating supernatural beings of which we're told in Scripture, you have something that they don't have. And they, the angels, are fascinated by what you have that they don't have. You have the blessings of salvation. You once... I once was lost. If you're a Christian this morning, you're now found. If you're a believer today, you were once blind. Now you see the angels were never lost. Not these angels. They were never blind to the glory of God. They never rebelled. And therefore the Lord Jesus had no need to shed his blood for them in the way that he did so lovingly and so willingly for you. In the way that he spoke about centuries before it happened. And the angels are fascinated to know what it must be like for the Lord of glory before whose face they stand. They are in awe of him. He is infinitely more glorious than they. And they are fascinated to know what it would be like for the Lord of glory to take on human flesh and suffer and die for our salvation. They long to look into these things. They will never experience it. Some of you will know Jim Leach from Airdrie. You'll certainly know his son, Jason. Jim used to sing a song about what the angels sing when they're worshipping God in heaven. It's a lovely song. It's a bit quaint in places, but... I'm going to quote it to you now just to help us get this point. So the first verse is all about what the angels sing, this song of worthy, worthy, and holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We're told in Revelation that's the song of the angels. The second verse says this, But I hear another anthem blending voices clear and strong unto him who has redeemed us and has bought us is the song. We have come through tribulations to this land so fair and bright in the fountain freely flowing. He has made our garments white. Then says the third verse, the angels stand and listen for they 
cannot join that song. Like the sound of many waters that by that happy blood-washed throng. For they sing about great trials, battles fought and victories won. And they praise their great Redeemer who has said to them, well done. Holy, holy is what the angels sing and I expect to help them make the courts of heaven's heaven's ring. But when we sing redemption's story, they will fold their wings for angels never felt the joy that our salvation brings. Do you get the picture? Even angels long to look into these things. Peter has taken us in verses 10 to 12 for a walk in a gospel wonderland. He wants to open our eyes to the wonder of this salvation that is ours because he doesn't want us to grow spiritually dull of heart, blind of eye, deaf of ear, and unappreciative of our salvation. And what if you're here this morning and you don't know that salvation? And the Lord has spoken to you and you now see the magnitude of what it is we're talking about when we sing, when I think that God is son not sparing, sent him to die. I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. If that has affected you, if it has struck you this morning, as this gospel has been preached in human weakness, but by the power of the Spirit, verse 12, then please don't hesitate to speak to a friend or speak to me, and we'll talk more of these things. Let's pray together. Father, grant us those happy eyes and happy ears and happy hearts for many prophets and righteous people long to see what we see but did not see it and to hear what we hear but did not hear it and the angels in glory long to look into these things strike our hearts afresh with this glorious truth Grant to us that though we do not see him, we love him, believe in him, and are filled with joy. For the glory of his name we ask it. Amen.